good morning. I am honored that you got up on this drizzly morning to be with us here at Evergreen. And I'd like to say a special thank you to some people that are very special to me in the first and second row, some of whom drove all the way from Everett to be with me this morning. My, my friends in the second row, as well as my aunt, who I'm very happy to have here this morning. Jared was kind enough to emphasize people skills, leadership, and not talk about my secretarial skills, which is part of the dirt that they carry on me. They're not very good. Don't hire me to be your secretary. I, however, decided to um, go back. I've been on Jared and Ann's team before, and I decided to do it a second time. So I liked it. I like them. We're glad to be here, and I am so grateful for the way that you've welcomed us, the many families that came and worked really hard. We're t- we are humbled and we are grateful and we are so glad to be here. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> today I get to talk to you about something I feel like I'm really qualified to talk to you about, and that's about being the oldest child in my family, in a family. I am uniquely qualified to talk to you about this this morning. I am an older sister to three. Um, my sister Emily is four years younger than I am. Uh, Nathaniel is 12 years younger than I am, but wait, there's more. My sister Maggie is 18 years younger than I am. If you're doing the math, I was a senior in high school, and my parents were on their, it was their 25th wedding anniversary year. Embarrassing. Hello. (laughs) What? (laughs) So I'd like you to meet them. There they are. That's my brother's wedding this summer. And um, I have decades of experience at such important things as being right, (laughs) reminding my brothers and sisters that I'm right, changing diapers, reminding my brothers and sisters that I change their diapers and they owe me, and all sorts of other really useful skills. In fact, my siblings, I know they really appreciate me doing all this for them. And part of the proof of that is that my sister, her favorite movie is one about sisters and sisterly love. And that's A League of Their Own from the 90s. Let's see a clip. We're going to see it. I believe it. There it is. (laughs) Why don't you get your sister to teach you how to hit? Kid, why can't you be beautiful like that sister of yours? What dog? idiot said that? No one. But I know that's not what they were thinking. No, it's not. No? You ever hear Dad introduce us to people? This is our daughter, Dottie. This is our other daughter, Dottie's sister. I don't know what to make of that, but I'm wondering if maybe I hogged the limelight a little bit much as an oldest child. Of course, then I went on to marry an oldest child, and you'll see my wonderful husband right there, both oldest children, and then we had an oldest child. There she is. She's beautiful, right? But of course, she's an oldest too. So now we, now we have a happy family of all oldest children all trying to lead the way. And then we have our second child, Gabriel, and poor guy, we just don't even know what to do with him. He's kind of an introvert. He, he's not as bossy. It's, it's, we don't know. We don't know what to make of him. You can, you can give him a hug when you see him. <laughs> so I consider myself an expert on a lot of things, but this morning we're going to talk to you about my expertise on being an oldest child. 
And I'm going to make some total generalizations. I know that not all oldest children may fit in this box, and I know that there are people who, maybe because you took on responsibility in your home, you fit. You may not be the oldest, but you fit into these same categories. But I just want to see if you recognize someone you know that might be a little like this. You know, if people are coming up to me after service and saying, that's just like my sister. Yeah, but maybe you see it in yourself a little bit too. Oldest children are competitive. We work harder and we want to get rewarded for it. Oldest children want to be in charge. My daughter was asked in Sunday school three weeks ago what her special talent was. Do you know what she answered? I'm really good at bossing people. (laughs) And she is, honesty. Oldest children want swift justice for wrongdoers. You know, mom, my brothers are swinging from the chandeliers. Get them. Oldest children have great memories of other people's mistakes. Some of you have experienced this from a brother or sister. My daughter remembers the rules better than I do, the rules I made. She wants me to make sure to follow through on that discipline. And in Luke 15, Jesus is speaking to a mixed group of religious and non-religious people. And like often happens, the religious people have become the complainers. They've spent years perfecting their religious culture and their good behavior, and Jesus is messing with them. He is flattening the hierarchy. He's short-circuiting the system, and they're angry because they have done the right behavior and they want to be rewarded. They're behaving like a bunch of oldest children. And Jesus, being the master of helping us understand life principles through a familiar lens, tells us a story about typical family dynamics, brothers, um, a father and his children, to help us understand a life principle that he wants us to get. It's a familiar attitude that these religious listeners have. It's kind of like that oldest brother or someone in your family that just always is right, you know? And, and they have that attitude. So, but you, don't also, you also don't have to be the oldest child in a family to be stuck in a performance rut of being self-righteous and, and needing to prove yourself and point out other people's mistakes. So we may all have something to learn. Let's t- turn to Luke 15 together. If you have heard this passage before, you've probably heard it called the prodigal son. But I'm going to ask you a question. We've talked about how Jesus is addressing these religious listeners in his audience. What character do you think in this story, if you've read it before, do you think that they might most identify with? I think it's actually the older brother. So this morning, we are going to turn the spotlight onto the oldest child, back where it belongs, in my opinion. (laughs) And we're going to unpack the life of the older brother in Luke 15. You see, I know all about oldest child syndrome because I've had it so bad. But I'm getting ahead of myself. First, I want us to meet the younger brother through the older brother's opinionated eyes. Picking up in verse 11, Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. And so he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country and he began to be in need. So 
He went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And so he got up and he went to his father. Well, you can feel the goody two-shoes in Jesus' audience bristling at this description of the younger brother. And let me tell you, the older brother can remember all his grievances. Let's talk about them. First of all, he has a bad attitude. He says to his father, give me my share of the inheritance. In a patriarchal culture, it, may, it already sounds bad, but it's actually even worse. He's saying, dad, I just can't wait till you die to get what's coming to me. So why don't you just give it to me now? I wish you were dead. It's pretty shockingly disrespectful. And when he gets what he asks for, he runs away from home and family, as far from his father's authority, as far, he puts incredible distance between himself and his family. And then he comes to poverty. He is dirty and humiliated. He's returning, he wants to return to his wealthy estate that he was raised on, which will be, which could be an incredible embarrassment in front of the neighbors, this this, this man coming covered in filth. And it's beyond physical filth. For the, in Jewish culture, to say that he had found a job feeding pigs, it has, it has religious moral undertones because pigs were, of course, not part of a kosher diet. So it was degrading, like on the level of us talking about being a pimp or a prostitute, a type of employment that would really be degrading to, hum, to their humanity in their opinion. He was, in, he was in some kind of, something like slavery, he, it says he hired himself or joined himself to a citizen of this other country. And he was working. He was taking care of the pigs. Yet the pigs are being fed better than he is. This does not sound like a great employment situation, much more like slavery. And he begins to think, I should go back and offer to earn my way back into my father's household. I could be a servant there and I'd be better off than I am here. He feels great shame. I don't deserve to be called your son. And the older brother is so ready to agree with that. The older child syndrome judges this brother guilty and wants justice without seeing any of his own failings. So let's meet this older brother. This is verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. And so he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. And so the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Have you ever been lost in your own home? You know, I was in high school. It was probably about 3 o'clock in the morning, and I needed to get up and go to the bathroom. And I, I 
done that before, obviously, but I uh, had to traverse a lot of the house to go to the bathroom in that particular house we were living in at the time. And I came out of the door, and somehow the trajectory of the bathroom door, my trajectory coming out of the bathroom door to the, to the hallway door got confused. And the next thing I know, there was an impact, and I was, I was down on my bottom just moaning, and loud enough to wake up, you know, the whole house. And my mom was going, oh, honey, did you hurt your nose? Because I had walked into the wall. And I said, no, just my cheeks, and it just seemed like, how did you do that? So we turned on the light, and we see that I've hit the thermostat and the molding. My nose was protected, but man, did I take it on my cheekbones. So I know what it's like to be lost in my own house. And I know what it's like in more ways than one. I had a healthy childhood, like many people who've shared this summer. I'm grateful for it. But I felt, I found myself feeling excluded from God's love. I was doing all the right Christian things in youth group and then in Bible college and a gnawing suspicion was still haunting me. I felt like I wasn't connecting with God's love the way people around me did. And I wasn't sure that I loved him back. I knew that I was afraid of doing the wrong things, but I wasn't motivated out of affection for God, more out of fear. I felt like I was at one of those restaurants where they have really nice pictures of the food, like you know, at Cheesecake Factory, you see the whipped cream. You're, like, just tasting your cheesecake when you look at that picture. And I'm getting hungry talking about it. And then everyone else around me had been served their food, and I was trying to eat that picture on the menu. Looks good, but it's not very satisfying. And that was what my experience, honestly, of walking with God was like in that season of my life. I figured... The problem was with God, it was not with God, excuse me, that's what I, I figured the problem is not with God, so it must be with me. And so I resolved to try harder, to think harder, to get rid of my nagging doubts and dark thoughts. And I was angry. Anger built at God being so hard to reach. I had much in common with this older brother who could not see his own oldest child syndrome. Let's look at his attitude. The younger brother had said, I wish, I wish you were dead to the father. But the older brother says, all these years I've been slaving for you. What's the corollary of that statement? He's, he he kind of cuts it off, but what he's effectively saying is, all these years I've been slaving for you, waiting for you to die so I can get my inheritance. So he may not say, I wish you were dead, but he says, I'm waiting for you to die. I don't find that to be much different. He has no enjoyment of life with his father. He's just waiting, biding his time, putting in his time, waiting for his inheritance to come to him. He sees the father as impossible to please. Some well-meaning person early in my teenage years told me to have a real relationship with God. You need to pray 30 minutes a day and read your Bible 30 minutes a day. Not that that's like a bad idea, but it became like this impossible standard that I could never quite reach. And no, no matter if I, you know, spent time with Jesus and done something right, I just felt like I always fell short of that, couldn't quite, you know, find that time in my high school schedule, and that I just was not living the real Christian life, and that's what was wrong with me. It just became kind of a prison sentence for me. Distance. The, the older son refuses to go inside the father's house in verse 28. Unforgiveness causes him to miss the party in his own home. 
He, in fact, is lost in his own home. He lives there, but he cannot make himself at home with his father because of his anger towards his younger brother. That's what unforgiveness does to us. We think we're going to punish the person we're angry with, but instead we punish ourselves and lock ourselves out of the grace and joy that God wants for us. Poverty. This one's probably the most surprising to me. The older son does not understand the father's generosity. He, he says, you wouldn't give me a young goat to celebrate with my friends. So the young goat compared to the fattened calf was like fast food. It was just something cheap. And he said, I couldn't even get that to have a party. And the father's going to correct him and say, that's not true. Everything that I have is yours, son. This is typical of oldest versus youngest children. You know, my parents did not have a lot of money when I was young. And uh, I kind of internalized this unwritten rule that I would not ever ask them. Well, I don't know if I can say ever. But I would not ask them for anything financial. That I didn't ask for things. That's just what we did. We were good kids. We didn't ask. And... um, I was shocked watching my my siblings are much younger than me. So life definitely changed along the way. Mom and dad had more money. Mom and dad loosened up. And um, I I see my brother one day, and he asked for this cap gun. And I had three responses. First of all, I was shocked because when I was a little kid, my mom didn't allow guns in the house. And that that rule was apparently going out the window. And I was keeping track. (laughs) Secondly... He asked for something, and it wasn't his birthday, and it wasn't Christmas, you know? Thirdly, my parents said yes. Can you believe it? So let me ask you this. Who was wrong about my parents? I would venture to guess it was me that he knew something about my parents' generosity that I didn't know. This older brother is unable to receive the father's gifts. He is the inheriting son of a wealthy landowner but he sees himself as poor. And the problem is not with the father's willingness to give. It's with his ability to receive gifts. Slavery. He is the son of this house, but he calls himself a slave. All these years I have been slaving for you, he says, while this son of yours squandered your wealth. This bondage is being produced by competition. It's the, I've been slaving, he's been squandering. He's comparing himself to his brother to say, I, I've done so much better. I've earned your approval. This is the dirty secret of overachievers, and I've been there. Sometimes we don't want anyone else to succeed. We might even rejoice in a failure because we're afraid there may not be enough approval to go around. And that's a terrible way to live. The father is not demanding this kind of performance from the older son. It's in his own mind and in his own heart that he believes he has to prove his worth every single day. This really is pride. It's not the kind of pride that says, I'm so great. In fact, it seems like he was awfully insecure. He needed to prove himself every day. But it's pride that says the world revolves around me and my efforts. I I have to do it right. It's all about me. He's angry with his father's forgiveness being unfair because he believes he's going to earn his inheritance. And so for his brother to receive something is totally unfair. But let me ask you an important question. Is an inheritance given to you because 
you're so great, so notorious? No. What's the one qualification for receiving an inheritance in a family? That you be a child. And he's missed, he's striving for something he already has. He's a child. Which brings us to the father. We're going to pick up in verse 20. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, this is the younger son, and threw his arms around him and kissed him. He's coming home from being off in a far country. The son says to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. My son, the father said, to, now to the oldest child, I'm skipping to verse 31. You are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So we've looked at the boy's attitudes. Let's look at this father. What's his attitude? He is a father seeking both of his lost children. Jesus has been building momentum in Luke 15. He's talking about things that are lost. He talks first about a lost animal, a lost sheep, and then he talks about a lost coin. I think the modern-day equivalent is losing your keys or losing your cell phone. The interesting thing is I always lose things when I'm too busy right, to keep track of where I'm putting them. My brain is scattered. But as soon as I lose my phone or lose my cell phone, I have to drop all those very important things I'm doing to look for my keys or my cell phone. And all of my focus goes to finding that lost item. And I think that's the point. Lost people get all of God's attention. But there's something that causes a lot more panic in my heart than losing an iPhone, and that is losing a child. Perhaps most of us in the room have at some point been responsible for the care of a child, even if it was just for a couple hours. So we might be able to relate to Jesus telling a story about losing a child. I think of being in Target, too busy looking at, you know, sheets or towels or something else really important, totally absorbed in reading the packaging, and having my two-year-old, at that time Gabriel, wander at least a couple aisles away, enough that when I looked up, and went to look for him, I, I couldn't find him. And the panic sets in. And I, I kind of have this, I try to keep this persona of like being a cool, like not too uptight mom. Like I have boys, I let them climb trees and ride bikes. But you know, the moment they don't answer when I call, that persona falls away. And every horrible story that I've ever heard about children being taken and kept for 20 years and coming out traumatized rushes back into my head. And I think, why was I ever so casual about this? And where is my child? And all of this happens in 30 seconds before I walk around the second aisle and find them on the next corner. And God wants us to connect with that kind of, remember what that panic feels like when you're responsible for a little person and you can't find them. Because that is the way his heart feels towards each of us when we're lost in our own way. He bridges the distance with both his children and invites them to his party. He brings affection and closeness. 
It says the father ran to the younger son and fell on his neck. This is an unusual display of emotion for a patriarch. And it catches my attention because my family is not very physically demonstrative. I felt loved by my parents, but, you know, we just weren't touchers, right? And so it kind of rocked our world when I married my husband, who has a, a Latin cultural background, and he started hugging and kissing us because we'd go to say goodbye to my parents after having dinner with them, and I'd be like, bye, just standing there. And Rick comes along hugging and kissing them. It's kind of, kind of awkward just to be standing to the side. So I had to awkwardly learn how to embrace them again and kiss them. So this catches my attention that the father runs, lifts up his robe and runs down the robe. I mean, runs and runs down the, the road. He does not ask him to clean up first. Physically, emotionally, religiously, this kid was filthy, an embarrassment to the family. But does the father see that? He sees his son and he wraps his arms around him and pulls him close. He wants to be close to him. And Jesus, the storyteller, is about to go to the cross to make it possible for a holy God to embrace us who are broken and covered with our own mistakes because of his righteousness. And this embrace is not just for the prodigal. He goes outside and invites the older son. I once thought closeness with God was reserved for those that had those really cool, miraculous, and exciting conversion stories but that's because I didn't realize how lost I was and how much I needed a reunion with God. The father extends extravagant generosity to both children. He brings out for this younger returning son a robe to cover his filthy clothes. It also signifies that he's a son. He brings sandals. Slaves did not wear shoes, so immediately he makes it clear that this is a son. He kills the fattened calf which is that food that we tell our kids not to touch because it's for guests. It's, that, it's, the, it's the, something that you would serve a very honored guest. And he breaks that out for his returning son. And he gives him a ring. The significance of that is in that culture, the ring had the insignia of the family on it and allowed you to sign, to do business in the family name. Isn't it a little shocking that this kid who just um, spent all the inheritance and did damage to the family's reputation is immediately received back into the family business. He's not, giving a tri- he's not given a trial period to see if his repentance is real, but the father immediately receives him back as a son. Again, this is not just for the prodigal. It's given as a gift. It is not er- earned, but the father goes out to the oldest son. He's looking around the party and he says, This is all great, but something's missing. My son, my older son is not here. And you see him leave the party behind because it's not complete without his older son. And he goes out to talk with him. And he says, son, the robe, the ring, the fattened calf, everything I own is yours and it's available to you. Won't you come in? Won't you come home? You see, this is what's clear. The father is seeking children, not servants. Both these boys these sons make an offer to their father or see themselves as servants. The first one says, let me work my way in. Let me take me on as a hired servant. The second one characterizes himself as slaving. But the father is looking for sons. There's a big difference between working for him 
and working with him. And he wants his sons to work with him. They will not be hired hands who don't know if they're going to get paid till the end of the day if their work is good enough. They're accepted as sons. They have everything they need, but they get the privilege of working alongside their father. And that is freedom. And I found my freedom in an unexpected way. In 2008, my world reached a crisis point after the birth of my second child. I was again struggling with dark thoughts, as I talked about earlier. They had morphed from doubts to repugnant, violent, or sexual thoughts, and they were looping through my brain. It seemed the more upsetting the thought was to me, the more it would stick to my brain. And so I went into performance overdrive. I did spiritual warfare. I prayed. I read more scripture. And nothing, nothing helped. In fact, it only got worse to the point that I truly thought I was losing my sanity. Finally, I couldn't bear to think that people would look up to me as a pastor's wife and leader. So I went public. I emailed my closest friends who were also church leaders and openly confessed that I was having out-of-control dark thoughts. And this landed me in a counselor's chair, and I thought my world was coming to an end because pastors don't need psychological help, right? Wrong. She diagnosed me with obsessive-compulsive disorder, mental illness. You can sugarcoat it. You can make jokes about it, but that's what it is. And my ideal of being the perfect child or the ideal Christian woman had come crashing down around me. And as I got treatment, got healing... In the dark, this oldest child found the truth. God never left me. My emotions and my mind were too broken to perceive his presence with me. But he was always with me, embracing me in my brokenness, not distancing himself from me. My friends and my husband loved me for who I was, not for my perfect performance in my roles or my usefulness to them. I began to get free from my need to prove my worth and compare myself to others because I am loved in my brokenness. And God doesn't need my efforts. The world kept on turning without my responsible contributions. He loves me for the sole reason that I am his child. When I was really sick, Somehow, the world kept turning. So if I don't do anything good for God or for you ever again, I'm loved because I'm a child. I give you a quote from a favorite author shared with a friend of mine who's in the audience, Victor Hugo. The supreme happiness of life consists in the conviction that one is loved. Loved for one's own sake. Let us say rather loved in spite of oneself. To, to know that we are fully known by God, every dark corner, every recess, and that we are also fully loved. What will that mean for you? That, my dear friends, is how God loves you and how he loves me, and it's a scandal of grace. So this morning, whether you are the oldest or the baby or somewhere in the middle, I ask you to consider if you have neglected God's grace in your life. Are you trying to sweat it out and do the right thing, hoping that God will approve of you? Perhaps you've known God's grace in the past, but you've somehow kind of reverted to trying to earn his favor. 
And maybe this is the first time that you've ever heard that God is anything but a harsh taskmaster who only has bad, disapproving thoughts towards you. He's a loving father. Some of us have relationships with our own fathers that make it really hard to picture God being able to embrace us and draw us close. But that's what he wants to do this morning. While the team leads us, I want you to think about what God might be dealing with your heart about. The Lord just put on my heart to remember that we are broken pottery that doesn't hold water. But there is no shortage of God's love to fill us up, even though we leak. So where would God's love meet you this morning? I'm going to come back in a few minutes just to pray a response with you.